all over the place in, on the internet, as well as on documents, you find these lists called FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions. You find them with various products or services or even in articles that are trying to explain a topic. Church websites have them. You know, they're all over the place. Frequently Asked Questions, they're a list of commonly asked questions about whatever you're promoting or explaining, along with answers you know, to this question. So let, let's just say you're trying to persuade a group of people to accept an idea. Maybe, for example, you, you have a law in your community that you, you want to change it, so you might go door to door, try to explain to people why you need to change this law, why it needs to be changed. And as you talk with people, you might come across people that aren't convinced that it needs to happen. They're not convinced by your argument, and they ask questions. Those questions aren't neutral. They're kind of pushing back on you, saying, I, I'm not so sure. There, there's reservations, or maybe they're just opposed to it. And you can then respond with an answer. And, and over time, if you get the same question over and over again, you kind of get a little bit more skilled at, at dealing with that. And, and so you might produce your argument in paper for you. You might make a pamphlet, or you might post it online, and you might list those questions that are really objections, and your answers to that, to try to explain why, to try to, com- not to, to compel them, but to encourage them uh, to not be opposed, to not have reservations about your perspective. So you give your spiel, and then you have these frequently asked questions. Well, in some ways, that's what Paul does in our passage this morning. I, I like how uh, Douglas Moo explained what Paul was doing. He, he writes, In over 20 years of ministry, I, Douglas Moo, have taught the same subject many times. By now, I can predict with almost 100% accuracy what questions students will ask at what point in the lectures. Paul, similarly, has been preaching the gospel for over 20 years by the time he writes Romans. He also knows what his teaching on certain topics will inevitably raise, that his teaching on certain topics will inevitably raise certain questions or even spark certain wrong conclusions among his hearers. As he sets his gospel before the Roman Christians, therefore, we find him repeatedly pausing in his argument to deal with questions that he knows his readers will be asking or to dismiss false conclusions he fears they may be drawing. So at this point, the questions Paul imagines here that he's, he's addressing, they're not neutral. The questions he poses are really objections to what he's been teaching. The person's basically saying, okay, Paul, if what you say is true then wouldn't that mean this? And then they suggest an objection to what he's taught. And as Dr. Moose says, you know, Paul's been doing this for a while at this point. He's been in a lot of different Jewish synagogues. And in those synagogues, he's come across opposition. So he's, he's come across these questions. And he's come up with answers to those questions. So up to this point in his letter... He's been teaching us that God's wrath is coming against everyone for their sin. Of course, that obviously includes the the idolatrous and immoral Gentiles, the Jewish person he imagined he's talking with, would certainly agree, agree with that. But Paul's also saying it's true for Jewish people. Even though many of them assumed that their membership in God's covenant people would keep them from experiencing God's punishment, Paul's saying no. No, the Jewish person is as equally condemned before God as the Gentile. It's at this point, Paul knows that that a Jewish person listening to what he's saying, they're going to push back. They're going to have questions. And so, as he lays out his gospel for these Roman believers, 
he includes these frequently asked objections. And, and the ones that he specifically gets here from Jewish people as he's sharing the gospel. So it would be easy for us, since most of us, not all of us, but most of us are not Jewish, we can imagine this has nothing to do with us. You know, this is a first century debate with people in God's old covenant community. But the fact is, is that, one, professing Christians can actually have similar objections to some of what the Bible teaches. And so the way that that this person objects to teaching actually can help us understand, in some cases, how our objections are wrong. They're, they're misguided. But also, other people around you could have objections to Christianity in a similar way with the Jewish person that Paul imagines he's talking with here. So we should pay attention and follow along with these frequently asked questions about Paul's teaching. And what we're going to see are two main categories to these questions. There are questions about Paul's teaching on the Old Covenant and then questions about Paul's teaching on Jewish condemnation. So that's what we're going to see in Romans 3, which again you can turn to. Romans 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And again, in the Pew Bible, that's on page 884. So if you use the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 884. And that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to look at, first of all, the questions that Paul has about or these questions about Paul's teaching on the Old Covenant. Basically, the person that Paul imagines he's talking with, they turn to Paul and they say at this point, okay, Paul, if what you're saying is true, that God's Old Covenant people are condemned just like those outside the covenant, well, is that really our problem? I mean, would it be a problem? Would it be God's problem for making an ineffective covenant? So they they kind of break that down, that overall question, in in two ways. On the one hand, starting at verse 1, they're asking if there's no special treatment for Jewish people on Judgment Day, then what was the benefit of belonging to God's old covenant people? And then beginning in verse 3, they're asking if Jewish unfaithfulness means that they're going to be judged by God, wouldn't that mean that their unfaithfulness to the covenant overrided or nullified God's faithfulness to his covenant. So let's unpack these two, these two questions. And, and we're looking, first of all, in Romans 3, 1 through 4. And again, they're coming from this standpoint. I've mentioned before. They're assuming that God was going to rescue every Jewish person, even sinful Jewish people, simply because they belonged to the people that he made a covenant with at Mount Sinai. And so Paul has denied that. He said that's not the basis of salvation in chapter 2, and especially in verses 17 through 29. So here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul introduces this question. He's saying that the person is, is suggesting, if what you're saying is true, Paul, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Basically saying, if there's no special treatment for Jewish people, then what was the point? What was the point of belonging to the covenant? And they're implying that what Paul's teaching would mean that there was no benefit. But look at Paul's answer in verse 2. He doesn't just say there were a few advantages. He says, much in every way. And then he says, to begin with, and that sounds like he's going to list out a bunch of advantages, and he only lists one. He's, He's focused in on a certain context here. And so based on that context, based on his argument, there is one advantage that's especially related to what he's going to talk about. But he, he doesn't just think it's the only advantage. Back, later on in chapter 9, he's going to list out more advantages for those who belong to that covenant. But 
Paul has mentioned this advantage in chapter 2. He's already mentioned what he's going to say here. He's already talked about God's special revelation. And what he's doing here is he's defending. That's a legitimate advantage that people in the Old Covenant had. And so he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, that's a strange way for Paul to talk. He doesn't talk that way anywhere else in the New Testament. So his specific wording probably means more than just saying the Jewish people have the Old Testament, God's revelation. He's probably saying more than that. He's, he starts off by talking about not just that they have the word of God, but that they were entrusted with it. And when Paul talks about himself being entrusted with the gospel, the idea is that he has it, he's going to preserve it so that he can pass it on to others. So it makes sense that that's what Paul's saying here. He's given a similar role to the old covenant people. God gave his word to them, not as an end in itself, but as part of a larger plan for others. So these old covenant people were entrusted with God's word to preserve it and pass it along to others. So in that sense, they're a vehicle of revelation. And actually, there's plenty of Old Testament passages that say that very thing, that God is using Israel to provide his revelation to more than just Israel, to the world. So he revealed himself through Israel for the sake of those throughout the world who would trust in Jesus. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. And it could also be that when he uses the terminology of oracles, that's not a common way for him to talk about the Bible. He could be using that because his Roman audience were comfortable with that word. But you found that word used in the Greco-Roman world for these oracles. Somebody would want to hear a message from God. They'd go to the Oracle of Delphi. They'd go get this, something that was a brief statement, and it actually needed interpretation. Somebody needed to explain to you what that oracle was all about. And so he may be implying here, and I think he seems to be implying here, not that God's word is unclear, but that it was intended for a future explanation, that there was more to the story. And so what Jewish people had the advantage of, that it was a true advantage to be stewards of God's revelation. But they were holding on to that revelation. It wasn't an end. There was more to the story. Later on in Romans, Paul will tell Christians regarding the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, similarly, now these things happened to them, people in the Old Testament, as an example, but they were written down for our believers' instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So it truly was an advantage to have God's revelation preserved among your people, to have that revelation. But it wasn't complete. It was pointing forward to the coming of Christ. So Paul's really describing the advantage. It's not having God's Old Testament wasn't what provided salvation. It was what pointed to salvation in Christ. That's exactly the way he describes it in 2 Timothy 3.15, where he describes the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, He says that they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So that wasn't a good enough response to the inquiry for this person that Paul has in mind. So they add to that in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
Again, they're responding really to chapter 2, where Paul says Jewish people are condemned for their sin. In other words, they need Jesus too. And so the question in verse 3 is really saying, if Jewish unfaithfulness means that God is going to punish his people, he's going to judge and condemn his people, wouldn't that mean that their unfaithfulness to the covenant was more powerful, was more effective, and nullified God's faithfulness to his covenant? Now, in order to make sense of what they're saying there, you need to understand what they're assuming. Their assumption is that belonging to God's people has saving value. So when they hear Paul say this, what they're hearing is this idea that their unfaithfulness to the covenant as a people, which is what Paul talked about in chapter 2, means that they're going to lose what God intended for them to get. It's like something is falling short in God's plans. I mean, God had made promises to save his people in the end. There are clear promises in the Old Testament. Say he's going to save his people in the end. So is Paul saying that their unfaithfulness to the covenant negates God's faithfulness to those promises? Have they somehow derailed God's plans? Is their unfaithfulness more significant than God's faithfulness? So there's more to the answer to that question. Paul's not answering that question completely here. He's going to go on to answer that question more fully in chapter 9, 9 through 11. Because there are, and I would, I would understand that the the promises of the Old Testament to say that God will save his old covenant people in the end. But he cannot talk about that until he establishes the fact that everybody needs Jesus. Because the way that God is going to fulfill those promises is through faith in Jesus. So he can't just answer that question right away. He has to kind of delay the full answer. But now he's focused on showing us this universal need for Jesus. So he wants us to understand everyone including the old covenant member, needs the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. And the Jewish failure to keep their covenant, that has not in any way challenged God's faithfulness to what he said. He's made promises. And Paul's emphatic on this point. Actually, the way he he responds to the question in verse 4, he says, by no means. A strictly literal translation is, may it not be. And some translations add the word never to that to try to get at the force. And John Wycliffe kind of got the ball rolling on some of the old English translations and saying, God forbid. The point, though, is that Paul's using an emotionally charged and highly negative response. That's the way Richard Longenecker puts it. He can't get himself far enough away from that idea that, that they've expressed. The idea is that our unfaithfulness could overwhelm or negate God's faithfulness to his promises. Paul says, absolutely not. And then he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In this case, the NIV is actually the, one of the most literal renderings. It says, let God be true and every human being a liar. It's stated as a third-person command. It's Paul's strongest way to say what he believes and affirms, that God is the one who is true to his promises. And every human is a liar. We are not true to the commitments that we make. Paul's really actually quoting from or alluding to Psalm 116.11 that says this very same idea that all humans are liars. We do not keep our word the way that we are supposed to keep our word. So what Paul's saying is God is faithful and we are faithless. And when this is shown to be true, in the end especially, God is going to be proved to be righteous 
And he's going to be shown to be right to judge even his people for their sin. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 51. It's a Psalm of David. And he quotes verse 4. And this is when David was confronted with his sin. This is King David. This is a major important person in the Old Testament. And he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And this is what he said. He was saying that God is right to punish him. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In the end, he's saying everyone's going to see, God, that you're righteous. Saying, I'm wrong. Everyone will see that you're righteous. God's word to Israel was not simply that he would save them. That wasn't the only promise God made to Israel. God also promised to punish his people when they sinned. That is absolute, just as clear as the promises of salvation. So the Jewish person in in Paul's day, they were assuming they were going to be saved because they belonged to God's people. They assumed that because they were only thinking about some of God's promises. Not everything that he said. God is going to be true to his promises of salvation. But he's also promised to punish his people when they sin. He will punish their sin. That's from the very beginning of the covenant. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses was very clear that God promised blessing for obedience and curse, a curse for disobedience. So, even after, throughout the Old Testament, this was acknowledged. Throughout the Old Testament, even after Israel had sinned and sinned and sinned and they were punished by being kicked out of the land, Nehemiah actually puts everything into perspective when he says in Nehemiah 9.33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. All this punishment we've experienced, you've been righteous, he says. He says, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. So Paul's saying that his, what he's teaching is not saying that the, the old covenant was flawed. He's not suggesting that in the slightest. The fact that Jewish people stand condemned before God just as everyone does, that doesn't mean the Old Covenant had no benefit. Doesn't mean that God's faithfulness was somehow overwhelmed by unfaithfulness. All those ideas are built on faulty premises. God truly did give Jewish people this amazing advantage of having a relationship with him and knowing him by his word. But that advantage didn't mean that their salvation was secured. Their sinfulness results in God's righteous condemnation. And when God punishes them, he demonstrates faithfulness to his promises in the covenant. Promises to punish their sin. Now, I know this is a specific argument for Jewish people, especially in the first century who are grappling with this. But it doesn't mean that that these objections aren't similar to things that we hear today. Objections that people can have with other biblical truths. You can be sitting in the pews and listening to the Bible taught and you'll come across truths that they don't sit well with you. You don't like what you're hearing. And, And as you hear that, you can question the effectiveness of God's plans. You can question the justness of God's condemnation. But understand that the objections that we have when, when we, we think of them, they're really based on foundational beliefs we're holding to that aren't actually true, aren't actually correct. In the case of the Jewish person, they were presuming 
on God based on a faulty understanding of their situation. They thought salvation was secured just because they were a part of the group. In a similar way, Christians, we can presume on God's promises because we have a faulty understanding of our situation. We can assume that our salvation is based on something other than ongoing faith in Jesus. Faith that that Paul actually refers to here, not simply as faith, he refers to the obedience of faith. He wasn't simply after faith, he was after ongoing faith. So, Our church holds to the belief that those who have been justified by genuine faith in Christ will be glorified in the end. Just as Paul will say in Romans 8.30. And we believe, just as Janice actually pointed to this morning, that those who, who have begun to experience this genuine work of God, it will be completed in us. Just as Philippians 1.6 says. Here's how our Baptist faith and message 2000 puts it. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, thereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring a reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. See, some have presumed on those promises. Some focus on an experience they had at some point in their life that they think assures them of what's been termed eternal security, regardless of the state of their faith later in life. They've been reassured that they are eternally secure because at some point in their life, they received the good news with joy. But Jesus said in Matthew very clearly that some receive the word with joy and later fall away. That's not in contradiction to the other things that I've talked about. It's the difference between genuine faith and a faith that is not saving. So you cannot, should not think you're eternally secure simply because at some point you had an experience of faith. But a person might object to that. They might say, well, if you're telling me that I'm not eternally secure, once I prayed to receive Christ and really meant it, wouldn't that mean God's salvation wasn't very effective? Or or they could say, you know, if, if my unfaithfulness to God after I'm saved means that I'll be punished, wouldn't that mean that my unfaithfulness was more powerful than God's faithfulness to his promises? Absolutely not. But God never promised salvation simply to those who express initial faith. Not a promise to people who, who have a, a certain form of faith that does not endure. That's not his promise. Genuine faith is ongoing. So it's not our unfaithfulness to God that overpowers his faithfulness to his promise. It's that God never made that promise. His promise is to those who have genuine faith in Christ. And that's a faith that endures. His promise is not to those who have some experience of faith at some time, at some point in their life. So that last line that I read in the Baptist Faith and Message, it comes from 1 Peter 1.5, which we, we've talked about before. And it describes the security of believers this way. It says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last day. Yes, we as believers, like that, that statement from the Baptist faith and message says, we can impact our experience of God's grace by our sin. But genuine believers who sin and experience the negative consequences for that, they're not losing their salvation. But the security that we have, it's secure through ongoing faith. And that's empowered by God. Faith that continues is empowered by God. And so it's continuing in your faith to the very end that is absolutely necessary. And you should never imagine that because you had some experience in the past, you're good to go. That's presuming on God. And just like the Jewish people in this text, we should not do that. So when Paul finishes that that sort of section, he, he turns to some more questions. And these questions are focusing specifically on Jewish condemnation, the condemnation of God's old covenant people. So in verses 5 through 8, the Jewish person saying, have you really done anything in the end that's worthy of being condemned as a people? I mean, if you think about it, Paul, our role in God's plan is still accomplished. You know, if, if Jewish unrighteousness put God's righteousness on display... Shouldn't we be accepted? Should he really punish us for that? If the Jewish lie caused God's truth, that's kind of covenant language, to abound to his glory, should he really condemn us as a people, as sinners? In chapter 2, Paul has made this case that Jewish people have historically blasphemed the name of God for their behavior, that they haven't pointed to God's glory in their behavior. But it looks like the person here is denying that. They're saying, look, the punishments that we have faced as a people throughout history, in the end, they actually don't give God a bad name. What they've done is they've given God an opportunity to show his righteousness, even if that was seen through our punishment. So we still fulfilled our role. And we've still put on display God's righteousness, even in our failure. So if that's the case, we did do our job. God shouldn't reject us as a people. He should keep his promises to, to save us. But at the end there, he says, that would mean, because we have still done our job, that it would be wrong for God to punish us. It's that thought that, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Paul doesn't even feel comfortable saying that. Like when he says it, even when he vocalizes it, he immediately makes this parenthetical apology. He's saying, just so you know, I'm, I'm just talking in a human way. He doesn't feel comfortable. He apologizes to even say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath. And then he gives a very clear response. Again, he says, by no means, God forbid, absolutely not. And then he points to this truth that both he and the person he imagines talking to would have shared. For then how could God judge the world? He's saying, look, we both know God is going to judge the world. But based on your logic... It would apply not just to the, the person in the covenant. It would apply to everybody. If that was the case, who could God judge? Now, the way that he, he's getting at that, he's basically saying they're trying to make an argument. If, if you simply play a part in demonstrating God's righteousness, then you shouldn't be held accountable for that sin. You still played your part in doing what shows God's righteousness. If that's, if that's all that's necessary, God could not condemn anyone. That's what Paul 
is saying. Everybody is really, whether they like it or not, a part of demonstrating God's righteousness. So Paul then tweaks that last question just slightly in verse 7. He says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And he's using language that he actually used back in chapter 1. So we have truth and lie, and then instead of righteousness here, we have glory or glorify. So in chapter 1, he made the case that Gentiles, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie of idolatry, and they didn't glorify God. The Jewish person here is saying, our situation is different, Paul. Our lie is different. Because our lie, our, our unfaithfulness to God, still magnified, still glorified his truth. Because his truth, they're assuming, means that he's going to be faithful to us. He's going to save us in spite of our sin. So that truth, it still brings him glory. So we're in a different situation. You can't really condemn us as a people because we function differently. We're, we're special. And again, Paul's saying they are special, but not in that way. Just because Jewish unfaithfulness to their covenant displayed God's glory still. That in no way justifies their unfaithfulness. And what Paul says is if you suggest that, you might as well just say, well, let's do evil that good may come. That's something he actually was accused of. So here, he doesn't say by no means. He doesn't say absolutely not. He actually steps up and makes an accusation. He accuses these, the, the person who would suggest that of saying, and why not do evil that good may come? That's their argument. Basically, hey, look, we did the wrong thing. But it had a good result in the end. Doesn't that good end justify what we did, even though it was bad? And he's saying, basically, all you're saying is, well, we should magnify God even more and do what's bad because it'll, it'll show how good God is. And people had actually accused Paul of that. We're going to see that in chapter 6. They had said, Paul, the fact that you believe that God's salvation is based on grace by trusting in Jesus and not by obeying yourself, that just encourages people to sin all the more because it shows how great God's grace is. And you can see here what Paul thinks of that idea. On the one hand, he considers it slanderous and an incorrect assessment of what he teaches. He does not teach that. But two, he says anybody who actually thinks that, their condemnation is just. For anybody who would ever imagine that it's okay to sin because it just makes God look more glorious. He's saying they're going to get what they deserve. That's how wicked he believes that idea is. Now, maybe you've never thought of things in this way. I mean, never reasoned this particular way before. But it's not at all uncommon for people to respond to biblical teaching in a way that is kind of represented here. You know, they hear biblical teaching and it doesn't sit well with them. And their response is to object to it. Basically, they'll say something like, okay, if that's true, then this would logically follow as a means of trying to argue against that. You know, if this, if this is true, Paul, then just like the Jewish person saying here, if this is true, Paul, then this would be true. And what we find in, in both here in Paul's argument and in the case when we're interacting with others is that it, it, it's really not coming down to our logic at that point. There is something else we're holding on to that is more important 
And we have put that, that idea at a value that we are unwilling to let anything question it. And so we have a logic, but it's not really the logic. It's that we're holding on to some other idea that we believe is, is more foundational. Again, the case that Paul's dealing with here, the foundational idea is that God was going to be faithful to his old covenant people no matter what they did. Their salvation was secure in that. So their idea of faithfulness, it was restricted to this one idea that God would save them. That is how he must be faithful. That is what it means for God to be faithful. That was what they were holding on to. For many, though, we can object to these ideas because of some other idea we have about God. You might not think in that particular way, but we could, we could perceive there's a conflict with, with some teaching and this idea we have about what it means that God loves or that God is fair and that he's committed to fairness to everyone. And the error in thinking that way is that God needs to measure up to a certain standard. This is what faithfulness looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what fairness looks like. And so God needs to meet that if this statement in the Bible is going to be true. This standard now evaluates any teaching that you get in Scripture. But God is not faithful to a standard somewhere out there in the ether. God is faithful to who he is. It's inherent His faithfulness, his love, his fairness, his rightness, it's a part of who he is. That's the foundation for it. That's the standard. He is the standard. So we can't bring a standard to God and say, you need to fit this criteria. We can only observe these truths. We can only observe the idea of faithfulness. We can only observe the idea of love and fairness by observing God himself. So when we kind of accumulate these standards, we think, and you could even think you're getting them from the Bible, and you measure God and say, God, you're only allowed to do this that fits with this standard that I have in my mind. Understand what we're doing. We have misunderstood God's nature. We've misunderstood the nature of morality. And what will happen is we'll invariably favor certain teachings in the Bible that fit with that, and we'll ignore the other teaching. Anything that would cause us to deny that non-negotiable that we have. So for the Jewish person, the non-negotiable was the promise of end-time salvation. Anything that would suggest God could condemn his people in the end, that was written off immediately because that non-negotiable That's true, so I can disregard anything anybody says, even the Bible itself, that would contradict that. There were those promises in the Bible, but they weren't the only promises. There were those truths. And so what happened for the Jewish person is their failure was to realize they didn't have the whole picture. That the old covenant wasn't the whole picture. It was pointing forward to Christ, the fulfillment of Christ. And so anybody who trusted in the old covenant, but rejected Christ, they really couldn't be secure in those promises because they were all pointing to Christ. So in the same way, we can look at biblical teaching that doesn't sit well with us. We don't like it. 
And we don't like it because we have a commitment to some other belief. Even if we think that belief is biblical. If we're unwilling to accept what the Bible teaches, understand, we are presuming to have the big picture. We're presuming that we can understand everything that's going on, and that gives us the right to do away with whatever contradicts the non-negotiable in our head. So here's the thing. It's much better to accept two truths in the Bible that seem contradictory and to wrestle with that than to simply ignore teaching that you don't like or try to explain it away because of the teaching that you do like. If we come across something that strikes at the heart of something we find to be a non-negotiable, this is what love means. This is what fairness means. And we think that can't be true because that wouldn't be fair. What we need to do is reevaluate our idea of fairness or love. Because what we've done is if the Bible's teaching something truly and genuinely, we've determined a standard outside of the Bible to then critique it. But again, we can't do that. God is love. God is light. The only way for us to even know what fairness is is to observe it in God. So if God does it, it's fair. And that is the only basis for morality, period. If you do not believe in God, you have no basis for morality. There's no basis for right and wrong apart from a God who is right and not wrong. The atheist has no reason why murder is wrong or adultery or anything like that. So the basis for our understanding of right and wrong is who God is and what God does, which means when we observe something that we're uncomfortable with, we need to think again about what's making us uncomfortable with it. It's not God that's to blame. It's not the teaching that's to blame. It's the standard that we're trying to hold God to that is actually wrong. Now, there's another way that we can, we can learn from Paul here, and that's in the way that he responds to these objections. So remember, Paul's dealing with a person that he sees as objecting to what he teaches. But look at the way he, he answers his questions. He, he does a number of different things. First of all, he just answers the question directly. So this person wants to know, well, what was the advantage? And Paul just tells him, here's what the advantage was. He just answers the question. The next time, though, he, he alludes to Scripture, and he quotes Scripture. He alludes to Psalm 116.11, every man is a liar. Then he quotes Psalm 51.4. Scripture was authoritative for Paul. So in his encounters with people that pushed back on the gospel, he would use Scripture. He would say, this is what the Bible teaches. Now, for somebody who doesn't hold the scripture, doesn't think that it's, it's foundational or authoritative, you can understand that encounter will look different. But that doesn't mean that you don't use the Bible as your authority still. The Bible remains our authority. It's still going to be foundational to anything that we argue. Whether the person we're arguing with accepts it as God's word or not, it's still foundational. But then Paul's able to do that here because the person he's arguing with really shared this, this teaching, they had a shared background in the Old Testament. And so you see that in the third way, especially. The third way he responds, he simply takes an idea that both of them agreed on and used it to counter the, the objection. So it's a good thing. When you have shared, shared beliefs, to 
take those and help people understand how that shared belief contradicts their own objection. And then finally, he just draws out the absurdity of what the person's saying. The person handles, gives his last objection, and he basically says, okay, now you're just talking crazy. And, and then he draws out what that would mean. And that's a, still a valid way to, to respond to someone. Now, we have to be careful. We're, not, we're adding tone to Paul. doesn't mean that he didn't do this winsomely. Didn't, he could still be loving in that. But he could draw out how ridiculous the person's position really is. It's not wrong to do that either. So this is just different ways that we can engage people with our faith. But, and, and, and what you see here is that there wasn't one tactic to engaging with somebody. Paul's tactics varied. And you can see that Paul learned over time. He, these are frequently addressed things. Now, in order for you to kind of build your own list of FAQs, for you to build your own list of frequently asked questions and answers to those questions, you have to engage people. You have to talk to people. That is, that's a non-negotiable. You're not going to grow in your ability to interact with objections if you don't bring things up. So don't believe the lie that people tell. Hey, look, you know, we, we shouldn't talk about religion. This is not religion. That's not how we understand things. Jesus Christ is our life. If that's the case, then you can't help but talk about him. In other words, if you are actually trying to have a genuine conversation with someone, let somebody into your life, you may not talk about Jesus every time, but you're going to bring him up because he's a part of your life. You're not being real with a person if you don't do that. You're not being genuine. You're, you're actually putting up a facade and you're keeping people at arm's length from you by not talking about Jesus because he's your life. So you have to engage with people. Now, maybe you've got objections to the gospel. I would encourage you that there are answers. Maybe you don't think you've done enough to deserve God's condemnation. I don't think I've done anything that really warrants this this punishment you're talking about. Understand what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are all condemned for our sin. That's what Paul's been stressing in Romans. And that's not our opinion. That's not my opinion. Understand where I get that from this book. And I believe that this book, it comes from God. So just understand the position that I'm presenting here. That God is the one that tells me that I'm condemned, and he's the one that says we're all condemned. And the Bible also says that the only solution to our situation is Christ. He's the one who came to rescue us from our sin to provide forgiveness for everyone who recognizes the truth of the Bible's Bible's condemnation of us, who recognizes, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I do see what the Bible's saying about me. And they trust in Jesus for forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why Jesus died and rose again, to save everyone who believes that, everyone who trusts in his forgiveness and restoration, and then who begins to follow him as Lord, believing that he's Lord. So that's what I would say to anyone objecting. That's what, that's what I would encourage you to do, to trust in Jesus and listen to him. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're believing what he says about himself. He says that he's Lord. If you're believing in him as Lord, you want to do what he says. So if you think you can believe in Jesus to get you out of hell, but then you're going to ignore him in terms of his his lordship over you, you're not trusting in Jesus. So I'm encouraging you to trust in Jesus truly. Submit to him. That's an aspect of faith. And if you still have objections, I would encourage you, 
talk to me afterwards. I would love to interact with any of those objections. Join me in prayer. Father, you are good. And you are fair. You do what is right. And you sit in the heaven and you, heavens and you do as you please because you are, you are moral perfection itself. So, Father, keep us from, keep us from questioning you. Help us to understand that outside of you and your righteousness and your love, outside of your faithfulness, there is, is no way for us to know or to have a foundation for love and faithfulness and righteous living. Help us to recognize that you are the standard and not to try to hold you to some other standard. When we come across teachings in the Bible that we don't like, help us to not simply try to explain those things away or ignore them. Help us never, ever to simply say, that's not the God I know. Because if it's in your word, it is the God. We know, the only one we can know. So help us to not have the same kinds of objection as, objections or attitudes as these unbelieving uh, Jewish people that Paul's talking to here. Give us the humility to accept that we don't have the full picture. That we're trying to get that from you, the picture that you give us. And that we'd be willing to listen to you as you challenge our thinking and help us to grow in our understanding and never to presume that we've arrived, that we have no more growth. We're in need of no more growth. We recognize that we do need to grow, that we can still learn, that we can see a picture that is bigger than the one we had before. And Father, if there's anyone in here who, who does find objections to this idea that, that you are going to punish sinners in the end, even object to the idea that Jesus can rescue sinners by his death and resurrection, I pray that they would be willing to vocalize those objections, be able to interact with the believers around them, and even interact this morning. Most of all, I pray that they would see the truth of your word, that your spirit would cause them to pay attention to it, in a genuine, ongoing way. Ask for your grace and mercy this morning. Amen.